Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, we're looking at the viral GoFundMe case gone wrong. When this thing broke, it was very sloppily handled. The New Jersey couple that raised 400 grand via crowdfunding for a homeless man could face criminal charges after allegedly blowing much of the cash. Bobbitt was known to be the person who was supposed to receive the funds. People went out and raised those funds. He's a homeless man. It's his story. But why shouldn't they be allowed to keep maybe one BMW? The rules of crowdfunding online and beyond. We dig in. He was molested by a priest beginning at age 10 and went public to fight for other victims disclosure of these abusers is the most important thing. A Pennsylvania child sex abuse survivor's quest to change a law that protected predators of the cloth. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is a GoFundMe case gone wrong. It all began last year when Johnny Bobby gave 20 bucks to help stranded Katie McClure, who ran out of gas on the highway. To repay him for his kindness, she and her boyfriend, Mark DeMarco, started a GoFundMe for Bobby, who was a homeless veteran. Of course, it went viral, raising $400,000. But over the months, Bobbitt has since lawyered up and filed a lawsuit in recent weeks claiming that the New Jersey couple spent all the cash. Bobbitt's lawyer says they only turned over about $75,000. They claimed that he was blowing the money on drugs. Police seized the couple's BMW, allegedly bought with the GoFundMe money. Prosecutors say McClure and D'Amico spent a portion of the money on a luxury vacation and shopping sprees. The couple could soon be indicted for fraud. So what are the rules for crowdfunding and what can fundraisers and donors do to ensure their GoFundMes don't go awry? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Tom Nichols. He's a journalist who penned a column titled City Safari, Faux Friends, Defund Johnny. Attorney Mukman Islam, who once represented a couple in a crowdfunding case gone wrong. And finally, on the phone, we have Mark Roderick. He's an attorney with Flaster Greenberg, who specializes in crowdfunding. Welcome, everyone, to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tom, I'm going to start with you because you were not surprised when you heard about this 400 grand in this weird GoFundMe case. Tell me why. I was an intimate friend of Johnny's, and I had been writing about the homeless in the river wards 
long before it became a chic, cool topic for the mainstream, mainstream press. I met Johnny outside of Dollar Tree when he was begging with a sign that said, homeless vet wants to go home to North Carolina. I struck up a friendship, wrote about him. I would bring him things. And I kind of knew that he had a very serious drug habit. I didn't know what. I don't know whether to go too far afield with this. Yeah, but, we don't want to but, disparage I mean, him. I believe, yeah. I believe that when this thing broke, it was very sloppily handled. Uh, the two people should not have been put in charge of this GoFundMe. There should have been a neutral third party. Not enough attention was paid to Johnny's uh, drug addiction mm-hmm. either. So did you that feel like he was being exploited here? Yeah. He was being exploited. It was right after the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. It was around Thanksgiving. The whole vet homeless thing struck people's heart. It was a perfect storm, of the wrong kind of sentimentality. And people opened their wallets without yeah. thinking. And the drug thing was ignored by the media. I really partially blame the media for not looking into Johnny's drug problem. Yeah. They just gave him the money. Yeah. Uh, and, part of the money. Yeah. And so, Mark, you got this couple who start out trying to do this good thing for a, a person that they see is in need. And GoFundMe is like this middle entity. Um, what responsibilities do they have? Wow. That is a big question. Um, it's a super interesting case because there's all kinds of tricky legal issues going Mm -hmm. on. The couple that raised the money, right, what their duty is is to not defraud the people that are giving money. In other words, you can't say, give me money for my five-year-old daughter who has cancer if you don't have a five-year-old daughter with cancer. So that's kind of one of the two main obligations here. They they had a duty to tell the truth to mm-hmm. prospective donors. Now, the relationship between them and the homeless man is complicated because they could have done a GoFundMe campaign saying, hey, we met this homeless man. We met a homeless man without including any photos of him or giving him his name. And they could have raised $400,000. And he would have had no claim against them, um, you know, if they hadn't named him and used his image and his name in their campaign. And then they could have kept the 400. I mean, yeah, they, they, they might have defrauded all those donors, but he would have had no claim. So that's the interesting part of where his claim arrived. Yeah, because he was used in the middle he of this. He was used in their advertising. And, and then GoFundMe is sort of this middle party here that just collects the money. GoFundMe is a middleman, collects the money. I don't think they have any responsibility here, any legal responsibility at all. They they cannot be, and under, I'm sure, their terms and conditions, yeah. they do not assume any obligation to investigate claims, you know, if they had to go out and, and look at the medical chart of every five-year-old girl they with never, cancer, yeah. you know, they... They, they just couldn't operate. So I, I, I don't think they're the bad guys here, whoever the bad guys are. I don't think it's them, and I, of course I don't think it's the, the donors either. Yeah, and we'll come back to this point. But I, I want to go to Mookman now because, Mookman, talk about the case you represented. This is not the first time we had a national case of crowdfunding gone a little askew. 
Well, I represented a, a, a family who were <clears throat> homeless at the time, the Love Park homeless couple, and they were found um, homeless and their child was taken from them um, by DHS. And then a local nonprofit raised money for the homeless couple in order to provide them housing. Um, we found out subsequently that our allegations were that subsequently after they raised the money, it was a lot of conditions placed on how to access the money, such as attending certain workshops, such as doing different things that they didn't agree with. And then at some point they were then told they had to move from the house and no longer had the money. But people had given this money specifically to the nonprofit and, and, for and that purpose. Correct. Yeah. And that's where our allegation was, as Mark was speaking on, we held that the position of there was a breach of contract because mm-hmm. the community raised, they raised money for what we would call it an intended beneficiary. Under the law, law of contract, a third party generally is not liable or not eligible to bring any cases. But if you know that this is the intended beneficiary of the contract, you can argue that I'm I'm entitled to it. So in the same case of this case here, Bobbitt was known to be the person who was supposed to receive the funds. People went out and raised those funds. So he's what we would call an intended ben- third-party beneficiary of the contract. And by that terms, we argued that we were entitled to the funds and access to the funds without the conditions. You know, when you hear about this, I mean, Tom, I mean, that's another yeah. homeless couple, it, you know, same type of situation. People wanted to help them. Why do you think so many people were willing? And you talked about this a little bit to help uh, Johnny Bobbitt and overlook this drug problem. You touched about why were they why were people so willing to overlook it besides just the media? I think a lot of them were, were very, very stupid. And they were sucked into this weird Thanksgiving Walt Disney like feel good fever. And it just caught on. Um, because when people I, see these pictures, everybody just kind of like but there opens are, their wallet. There are hundreds of people like Johnny Bobbitt all over that area who do good deeds. And now there's even some question about whether the whole gas can incident was really real. I feel that this case will probably grow and that more things will be discovered about it. I think that the couple used Johnny as a kind of a cash cow. He then went and lived behind their property. And shortly after this, they went to Manhattan. They signed a deal with the foundry. And have um, you substantiated? Uh, you're a journalist, so I'm agency. Assu- did you substantiate any I of this? I saw this on Instagram. They signed a contract. There's a book about to be written about the three of them. And the author, I believe, is from East Hampton. Now, now what does a woman from East Hampton know about the Philadelphia homeless? Uh, uh, that's an aside, but I think it's a very valid question. Yeah. And so this is a some people use this and I've seen people go, get famous off of viral, you know, not just GoFundMe's, but viral videos, viral things. And and so I want to bring it back to the to the issue of crowdfunding, though. And Mark, are there basic rules that people need to remember? I mean, Mookman talked about if you raise money for somebody, you know, specifically, are there basic rules if you decide you want to raise some money? Are there basic rules that you should be thinking about? Well, uh, you know, in 999 cases out of 1,000, the issues, you know, don't come up. If, if you're thinking about the rules, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, if, you, <laughs> if, you, uh, if, if you're doing the, the GoFundMe campaign and, and uh, you do have a five-year-old daughter and she just has a bad head cold and you're asking yourself, well, what are the rules? How far can we stretch that? You know, then you're you're in dangerous you're in dangerous territory. In general, to answer your question, there is no one rule. 
it is the rule is you have to be truthful. Um, you can't defraud people. Um, uh, and and uh, again, I, I want to say because I do I spend all my time in the crowdfunding space. This is the uh, man bites dog story. The, the reason we're talking about this, and the reason, frankly, I and probably the other participants have been in, like <laughs> lots of calls about this over the last couple of weeks, is that it's so extraordinarily unusual. Um, this kind of thing almost never happens. Um, uh, but uh, to answer your question, don't defraud people. Be truthful, and you will be perfectly fine. If I, if I can add on to what Mark just said, I will say this is that in the crowdfunding space, I agree, but this happens a lot on the street, on the regular folks, meaning I'm a nonprofit, I'm raising money for XYZ purposes, and then I use it for another purpose. That happens all of the time. It happens very common. And there's a couple of things we have to worry about is, number one, if you are a nonprofit, what is the charitable organizations here in the attorney general's office, what are they concerned regarding your funding? So if you raise money and say, I'm going to help out XYZ homeless couple or XYZ a homeless person, and you are a charitable organization... People will give to you. People will give to you. They say they, you're a trusted, exactly. you know, person, and facilitator. Then, and here. then you go use it for a different purpose, whether it be the preacher's pocket, whether it be the whether it be the operational funding. There, this happens very often in the corporate world. I will say to, in regards to this specific situation as well is that most of the time in crowdfunding you find people who are completely lying, completely lying. And I think the, the interesting thing in this case, similar to my case, is that they're alleging, at least the, the, the people who – raise the money, that the reason why they didn't give the money was because of his drug addiction. And what I'm saying to you is that now that becomes a condition that they're placing on the money. So my question, or at least my issue, and, and as, as Tom mentioned earlier, what's going to come out is what was the conditions of this fund? Because if they said we're going to give it to this homeless person, but for whatever reason, let's say they gave him some money and they found that he, he was using it for drugs, are they then responsible to keep giving him money to use for drugs? But I think in this case is kind of egregious because you spent four hundred thousand dollars i mean it's, and and, it's, and i want to go back to mark for, for a quick follow-up there i mean if should there i mean because here i mean tom said i mean he knew the guy uh the guy admits um uh, mr bobbitt admits that he had a drug issue um there were yeah. problems here in the home in the case of the homeless couple there were some issues okay but that wasn't those issues there were no conditions said when the money was raised it, should yeah, people I mean, think about those, that? Those are, I think, from a legal point of view, um, vis-a-vis the couple, those are completely, his drug use is completely irrelevant vis-a-vis donors. There is, the couple could have done something else with the $400,000. It could have uh, created a trust. It could have just interpleaded the money into court and said, listen, this is the situation. We don't know what to do. The one thing they could not do is buy themselves BMWs. That is correct. <laughs> so, so, th- so that's you know that's just not okay. And his drug use is is irrelevant. The the interesting thing, and if you're a cynical person, mm. interesting thing is what is really the relationship between the homeless man and this couple? Because we are all assuming. And it may well be true that you know there, there's nothing, there's nothing between them other than what we know. But I mean, what if it turns out that there was an agreement between the homeless man and the couple that they would conspire? Well, that's what I to said. raise this money using GoFundMe, and sure, mm-hmm. the couple would get. 
their BMWs and the homeless guy would get some money. I mean, that's not out of the question. It's, it's just a... And then all of them know, would be in trouble. It's a very interesting situation. I, I think not just all of them will be in trouble, but you're going to have a very... I think the lawyers who brought the lawsuit, I'm going to allege, at least on good faith, that they did their due diligence. Yeah. And they know that there is not at least a smoking gun to that effect. Because if they did, yeah. and they brought a lawsuit suing the other party, and they have not alleged any agreement... They're going to be in for a windfall if that comes out. Yeah, so that's my concern. And the and the authorities are going to get involved because you, then you got uh, you know the indictment would spread to all three as co-conspirators in in, in this type of thing. And so we talked about this time. There are, yeah. uh, you know, people are using crowdfunding for all kinds of crap. Yes, but uh, I have to say that I think that heroin and drugs yeah. plays a major part in this. I do not think had the public known. The extent of Johnny Bobbitt's heroin use, they would not have contributed. There would not have been 10,000 donors. His heroin use was extensive. And to just give somebody And, and give all the that background on why you know this, because restra- he hasn't specifically said. Johnny, Johnny and I would have long, long talks. I would say, are you on heroin, Johnny? No. He would get very, very angry. He would name Percocet or something. Yet all of his friends were heroin addicts. I would see Johnny go into the bosom of Kensington to do the old heroin. And the couple has said that they, they, he was spending it on drugs. Yeah, a- absolutely. And a full year before this broke, I know his friends and I've been following their stories. They told me that he would get an Uber and he would come in. Somebody else would get the drugs. He would go back to New Jersey. And his friends also told me he was spending thousands of dollars at this store and that store. And I thought, why doesn't the media talk about this? This is crazy. This money is going through a sand funnel. Yeah, and the couple has said this publicly that he was misusing the funds. Right. But, you know, people have, you know, this is this is sort of raising the alarm in a lot of ways on this, and on this crowdfunding because we have people who are setting up funds to go on vacation, people who are setting up funds to do all sorts of things. And Mark says, as long as you're truthful, it's not an issue. Well, you know, yeah. I couldn't substantiate this because I couldn't, I couldn't prove it. But it later all came out. I want to ask Mookman this lawyer question. Let's say the Johnny's lawsuit against the couple goes forward. Do they have a claim to at least some of the money because they did a lot of the work? I mean, he's a homeless man. It's his story. But why shouldn't they be allowed to keep maybe one BMW just because, you know, without their effort, he wouldn't have got anything? Legal- is, that, is that a legitimate legal claim on their part? I, I think so. I think legally there's a couple of things here. It's all about how you present it. So if they have money in a trust, and let's assume they have a management fee, which they're managing the account, they're handling the account, they're putting it in different places, they're doing different things to either transfer money or send um, Johnny back and forth to, to, to Philadelphia. Those are things where I think they're going to have to account for the expenses and justify that fee. And I would agree with you that there's probably a nominal amount that they could say maybe, if I, I don't know how long this has been going on per se. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that. But the problem here is, Mark, they can't account for anything to my understanding. It's my understanding that in New Jersey, Judge Paul Ladau has recently requested or demanded that they provide documentation of the money or turn over the money. They haven't done that so far. And then in addition to not turning over the money, now the attorneys are asking for statements and they have no statements. So I would agree in traditional cases, yes, you can. And I think in my case, that's what was being told on us. Um, It was about, I think, $15,000 or $20,000 raised. 
And then they told us at some point it was only about $6,000. I could be wrong on numbers raised, so don't quote me on that. But the point is that when we got into the case, they were like, oh, majority of the money was depleted. And they argued where they'd spent the money on and why they spent it. And I think you got a fighting chance on that. But I think here, um, as you mentioned, a BMW, $400,000 was raised. And then that's another thing that's the problematic in this case is that you can document how much was exactly raised. If you go into a church or you go into a place, in a, like in our case, where you publicly ask for donations, you can always argue, oh, this wasn't a donation for that. This was a donation for something else. Well, here you got crowd, I mean, GoFundMe who literally shows you how much it came in and what was the campaign for. So I think in this case, they're not going to be able to argue that. But traditionally, I would agree with you, Mark. I would say, yes, you could make that argument. Yeah, and does there need to be more regulation here? I think, I mean, I think crowdfunding is going to come. I think crowdfunding has looked at, is going to look, I, I agree with Mark, is that traditionally speaking, they're not liable. But there's a couple of things I would look at. Number one is, was there ever notice to them about this campaign? You know, was there notice to them to say, hey, this is a fraudulent campaign. This is not going well. I'm not sure how often, how long it took to raise the 400000 but let's assume it took like six months or five months or something of that nature. Then at some point, did someone make a complaint? And then you may have put them on notice. And we've seen other social media sites come under They shut it down. To shut that down, they didn't do it. The second thing I would say is in their policy, they do mention that um, they don't investigate, but they take it seriously. And they, um, any, any, they specify how that yeah. they try to make it sure it goes to the intended beneficiary. And, so this, I, and in this case, they're stepping up. Exactly. And, 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 well, you know. technically, they said they would give the whole, but I saw they only gave $20,000 so far. Yeah. So they haven't technically. They're probably going to wait to see what, how much he really got <laughs> before they before they promise that. And, 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 um, and so we do, there could be uh, more regulation um, out here. And, and should, I mean, should there be like some warning to donors? Because donors aren't looking, they see this, they see a, the picture of a guy like Johnny Vett on there. You know, Tom, and it like squeezes you mentioned. your heartstrings, especially at Thanksgiving when you've seen a Ken Burns uh, documentary on the Vietnam War. Uh, as I said, it was the perfect yeah. storm. The timing was impeccable. People just opened their wallets when they saw a homeless vet, and then it went crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think they do get get uh, lots of warnings. Yeah, you I think I think donors at all these sites get lots of warnings. Uh, in particular, that the site itself, whether it's Kickstarter or Indiegogo or GoFundMe, is not doing any any investigation. But so, the question mark is how many people actually read those documents, and this is zero. Exactly, that's the, think, and that's the problem. I think, I think it goes back to that. And, and and how easy is it to create a fake one? Is it just can you just slap a photo up there? I mean, is it just easy to just defraud people? I think it is, but I think it. I think this is one of the weird cases, though, that won't really hurt GoFundMe. And the reason why is because there was an actual Johnny Bobbitt. There was an actual person who was supposed to get the money. Yeah. And the person who raised the money did something fraudulent, allegedly. Yeah. So that's the problem here. In the other case where you're saying, I agree with you, Sherry, if you just have a random photo of your great uncle and he's no longer alive and you make this story up, you can arguably look at GoFundMe and other organizations and say you should do more. But this is a situation where essentially the, the, the receiver of the money went rogue. Yeah, yeah. It, There's it, a uh, precursor to this whole gas can incident, and it happened about two and a half years ago, perhaps three, in North Carolina. Johnny had made a Facebook entry about helping a woman who had run out of gas in North Carolina. He gave her gas and then wrote on his Facebook page, uh, I'm glad I did what I did, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I found this extremely interesting. Yeah. It is. That, uh, that is really interesting. So this is a twisty, uh, turny 
uh, case that could end up with people doing jail time. It is. There, 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 there's been the attorneys for the uh, family who raised uh, Mr. D'Amico. Um, they said that there's indictments coming. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, and I know in New Jersey, for example, Pennsylvania has an embezzlement statute. Uh, New Jersey doesn't specifically have that, but it's under their theft yeah. by deception where they say that if you use the money and don't dispose of it as you said you would, then you could be liable for those charges. Yeah. And should these should these sites, Mark, do, they, do, do, do things need to get tightened up? I mean, every time you I mean, people don't think about this kind of stuff. Um, and, and every time, you know, another case pops up. You know, are you going to be tweaking any of these language, any of these mm-hmm. these contracts and this this language anytime soon to to to, to deal with this particular case? Well, yeah, I mean the the, the language, uh, you know, the idea that these things could happen and that someone could blame the site is, you know, that is that's very old news. So, I and the other lawyers who draft these things. We already, we, we provide, you know, we include as much language and as many warnings as it's like it's humanly possible. So I don't think there's, uh, I don't think the sites can really do anything more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I will say just, yeah, it, is, it, it is funny how when you hear about any kind of scam, whether it's an online crowdfunding scam or a more normal scam, it can seem funny how easy it is to defraud people. On the other hand, if you've ever tried a GoFundMe campaign, even for even if you do have a five-year-old daughter with cancer, God forbid, it is extremely hard <laughs> to raise money it's true. Using, using GoFundMe or Kickstarter or anything else. So it's a it's a real it's a strange situation, which is why again I think part of why we're talking about it. It's so hard to raise money. Um, and yet these folks, with this crazy story, you know, managed to raise a huge amount of money. It's, just, it's a very, very unusual situation. There's a saying in the law, bad facts make bad law. And, and bad, mm. facts also, bad facts also make bad regulations. So I, I, I'm not sure what a regulation would look like that would prohibit this kind of thing from happening. You know, we're talking about these people certainly facing civil lawsuits and maybe even criminal indictments. If that's not enough of a disincentive um, to engage in this kind of behavior, I'm I'm seriously, I'm I'm just not sure how you could regulate a crowdfunding site to keep this kind of thing from happening, you know, once in a while. Yeah, this this is definitely a case that says scammers beware. And so, Mookman, I want to ask, what's the status of the couple? Uh, the status of a couple right now, like I said, they, one was being charged for a traffic incident and was recently arrested. The other one, um, the, their lawyers have said— I meant the, your, the Love Park couple. Oh, <laughs> my Love Park couple. They, I haven't represented them about a year. We settled our case. Um, they've been on their way from my understanding. They're doing well. Okay. Well, that's good stuff. Because this is Flashpoint, we need to wrap this up. Crowdfunding can open the door to fraud funding. But give your final thoughts, gentlemen. Donors and fundraisers are now looking at this issue with skepticism. You know, lots of comments on this. Would you raise money or donate? And what would you, what do you think needs to be done or could anything be done to prevent what happened in this case? When there's a drug problem, I think that the public needs to know when there's a serious heroin issue. You don't need reporters on Good Morning America to say, oh, Johnny, I understand that you had a drug problem. And Johnny says, oh, yes. Yeah. 
End of discussion. Mookman? <laughs> My final thoughts are simple. I think if you're going to raise money, as Mark said earlier, be truthful. Say what you're doing it for and do it for that purpose. And don't place the conditions. And if you are going to do some type of conditions, have it in writing. As far as those crowdfunding and different type of organizations, I would suggest if you have someone who's raising money for a third party, specifically have that third party involved in the final transactions. And final word, Mark. It's a story that shows the that there are no limits to human greed and and cynicism. So it's uh, you can laugh about that or, or cry about it, whichever you like. I think it is, in the crowdfunding space, pretty rare. You should, when you give donations in these things, <laughs> you should almost assume you're never seeing that money again. Don't be surprised by anything. Yeah, That's- you got to understand when you're giving, you don't know where this money is going to go, actually. So you just hope that the people are honest. And so I want to say thank you to Tom Nichols. Thank you to Mukman Islam. And thank you to Mark Roderick for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. He was molested by a priest beginning at age 10 and went public to fight for other victims. I could no longer stay quiet. A Pennsylvania child sex abuse survivor's quest to change a law that protected predators of the cloth. We'll be right back. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets folks hot under the collar is sexual abuse of children. And when a Catholic priest is the predator, it is heartbreaking. In July, the Pennsylvania Attorney General released a nearly 900-page grand jury report identifying a pattern of abuse in multiple archdioceses in Pennsylvania. Oh, that's a memory to... Uh to have. John Doherty's story of being molested by a priest at age 10 in Johnstown is included in a 2016 report detailing abuse within the Altoona Johnstown Archdiocese. When you have the priest um, touching you every day, you know, that's a hard memory to, uh, to have. The first thought of an erection that you have in your life is by the hands of the priest. At 48, Sean is an advocate working to change the laws that protected predators of the cloth. Sean called into Flashpoint to talk about that effort. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Sean. I I know this is a very tough topic um, to talk about, and we won't go into gory details here. But I just want you to explain why you decided to come forward publicly and to share your story. I'm one of the redacted names from page 66 and 67 of the Altoona Johnstown Grand Jury investigation. I gave statements to the district attorney in Cambria County in 2012 ahead of the grand jury investigation, and my and a few other cases were turned over to the state attorney general. Our cases led to the grand jury, and when the grand jury information was released, in March of 2016, it hit me like a brick. And I I just, I, I could no longer, after seeing that report and realizing that the, my gut was always right from childhood, I could no longer stay quiet 
uh, I, I'm from a huge family. I'm one of nine kids from a small town. Everybody knows Adocrity. Everybody knows how devout Catholic my family was. And I felt confident that if I came out publicly, that I would be supported just for the fact that they would say, man, if this happened to a Adocrity, it can happen to anybody. And if it happened to a Adocrity, they're telling the truth. This really happened. You coming out added credibility uh, to what was happening. But talk about your family's devout Christian. I'm a Catholic as well. You talk about your devoutness and what something like this, what did it do to your understanding of your love for, for God and the church? I am no longer a devout Catholic. I was a devout Catholic as my family was when we were growing up. Um, th- this has, uh, you know, really wrecked my faith in the church. Uh, I even upwards and has made me struggle with faith uh, in God in general. Uh, I, I pray, I will say, but I don't pray anything uh, like I was taught to pray. You know, uh, I, it's more of a conversation uh, than prayer. Uh, I have a hope. Uh, uh, it, it's just my family is... Uh, you know, this last report that just came out has really hit home with my family. Uh, they they were fracturing uh, from the religion throughout the last decades to begin with, but uh, uh, several of my family members uh, that were very devout uh, Catholics would never miss a Sunday, would never miss a holy day of obligation. Don't go. It's having a devastating impact on their lives. You know, when when your faith is a central part of your life for 50, 60 years, 40, 30, 50, 60 years, and all of a sudden your faith is tested to the core, that's a hard bridge to cross. I read a letter that you, you wrote, an op-ed, I think it was, where you talked about the support that you received. Uh, tell me about this support and how necessary was it for you to, number one, have spoken to the you know, done the investigation in 2012 and then to again publicly show yourself now, uh, how necessary was that and what was the nature of that support? It's incredibly empowering. You know, before I went forward, I called every one of my brothers and sisters and my mother and I phoned my wife's parents and her sister and had a conversation with everybody and let them know that I was hoping for their support. And I was given the support of everyone. So I had the same conversation with my staff. I own a restaurant here in New York. When your core group is on your side and you know that they're on your side and you're open with them and you're you're having a conversation throughout uh, this process with them, that's priceless. You, it, it is so necessary for, for victims to feel supported. You have to... Keep in mind, our trust was ruined at young ages. We really want to tell our stories, but we're not just going to tell it to anybody. If we're supported and we know that, that, that we're going to be cared for and, and, and people or children of today are going to be helped, we'll open up and tell you the hardest days of our lives. You hear about sexual abuse, and it's bad. I mean, when people are abused, that is wrong. But when it's by a person of trust, like a priest. And I remember how we viewed our our priest growing up. Can you explain what that position of trust does 
and and then sort of the trauma that it leaves you with for ye- for many many years. We are taught this incredible story, okay, of the birth of Jesus and how he was sent to save us from sin. And there's this kingdom in heaven that is awaiting us if we live by these values and these morals. And the people that are teaching you this faith don't act more in, in a moral way, don't act in a religious way, take your innocence, wreck any chance of a quality life in the future. It's difficult to then believe them after that. These are the people that are going to get your soul in the heaven for eternal life, and they're destroying your soul. And then when it is realized that they are destroying you and people are catching on to it, then they fight harder to protect their secrets. How do you wrap your head around that when you're growing up being sexually abused starting at 10 to 13, and then you turn 15, and then 18, and then 28, and then 38, and now 48? And and I'm still trying to comprehend what they've done to me. I can't even imagine. You've experienced trauma, I'm sure. Your wife has been supportive. And a lot of people didn't ha- don't have that type of support and didn't make it. And how do you think you made it? I really think that I'm incredibly fortunate. I was sexually abused. There were a lot of people that had to do really horrific things out there that and are no longer with us. So I really feel obligated to get out and tell my story for those guys and for future generations. That's why I fight so hard for the statutes of limitations. That's why I fight so hard for the retroactive window. I I can't believe that we have to fight so hard, especially after a report like this. But what people need to realize about that retroactive window is, you know, victims, uh, especially victims like me, who, you know, people say that we're after money and we just want to sue. It, it has never been about the money with the victim survivors. Although some victim survivors, you say, you know, I know many survivors that, that are barely functioning in life and absolutely need compensated for this. However, they're not speaking out and they're not fighting for this legislation to get the compensation. They're fighting out for this legislation because disclosure of these abusers is the most important thing. Without that retroactive window, there's nobody that can come forward and disclose, like taking point the the redacted names, the 30 redacted names that are still out there from the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. No one can come forward and say, hey, this guy abused me. Because they just saw them fight all the way to the Supreme Court. You don't think that they're going to put a slander suit onto somebody that comes out and accuses them of something? However, if the retroactive window is put back, they can enter a suit and they can say this person is a child molester or this person covers up child molesters, which in turn makes the community around that person safer. The children in that person's community will be aware that that person likes to sexually assault children. That is the whole purpose of that, that, that window. The payout plan does not disclose the names. The payout plan just pays the victims pennies on the dollar and keeps the church's secrets. 
It is not about the money. It's about disclosure. And so let's talk about the the current um, proposed legislation. Tell me about it um, and, and what it's designed to do, and specifically because it's not easy. It takes time to process this, to put it together, and to get the courage to come forward. And some people suppress it. They don't even remember until years later. There are government reports, CDC, Center for Disease Control-sponsored reports, uh, saying case studies showing that most victims don't come and speak about their abuse until their 40s and 50s, if they ever divulge the information to begin with, publicly or even privately. The only reason I first spoke of something at 21 is because I swore an oath entering the military. And when I took the oath, it made me feel uh, obligated to speak out, or I wouldn't have said a word. And in fact, into 2012, when I was 42 years old, is when George Kaharchik, my abuser's picture, was on the front page of the Johnstown Tribune Democrat, and my mom called me here in New York to inform me. Had that not come and happened, uh, had the bishop not released him as a as a priest and my mom not called me, I don't know that I would have devolved publicly to this day. Most cases, people can't even come to grips with what happened to them until they're almost middle age, until they have gone through their 20s and 30s experiences uh, and realized, you know, how serious of a matter this is. And it is not going away. You thought you'd get away with it. It'll go away after your 30s and eventually you'd forget about it and move on with your life but it still sits there on your shoulder and it doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't go anywhere. And so what this legislation does is, first of all, it eliminates the statutes of limitation moving forward. You know, there is no reason. We already have safety precautions in our judicial uh, system that, you know, there are checks and balances. And if you have a legitimate case and you can prove your case, uh, they'll let your case go forward. If if you can't prove your case, it's going to go through the trial process and, and get to a certain point and then get dismissed because it doesn't have or no judge is going to allow it to go uh, to trial or an attorney won't take it because it doesn't have merit or, or something. So we're going to eliminate the statutes of limitations moving forward. But the most important part of this legislation is that retroactive window. The reason that they were able to get away with this is because they were able to cover up all of these crimes because our weak statutes of limitation, which were developed and designed by the abusers themselves, you know, they had very much power and control over our legislators, our local DAs, our local police department. In the 80s, I only had two years to press charges after the end of my abuse. I stopped being abused at age 13, which means I only had until 15 years old to say something or do something, which isn't old enough to drive a car in Pennsylvania, let alone take on the the power of the Roman Catholic Church and the district attorney's office and the state government and, and all of that. So we have to take the power away from the people that are abusing our children and give the, the resources and the due process back to the victims so that when they are ready and when they have come to terms with and if they are able to prove their case, can bring charges against uh, their abuser. And, and that's the whole, the whole purpose of this law. 
you know, moving forward is one thing. Moving forward mm-hmm. and eliminating the statutes of limitation without the retroactive window all but guarantees it's going to happen again. And for the reasons that I just said, people don't disclose, we won't know who is raping or, or children today for another 20, 30, or 40 years from now. Yeah, and I so, think that's the part that people are have so diff they, they don't understand the processing and and what this type of trauma does to a child's mind and why no. you can't I mean it, it it takes years to process this to deal with it and and to and to then have to say something you know it's always with us try going anywhere and and not seeing a Catholic church try turning on something and not not hearing a Catholic commercial or you know, I mean it's very difficult. There, there are triggers and reminders everywhere. And so what did it do for you when this, how did you feel the day that this grand jury report came out in Pennsylvania? I felt 50 pounds lighter that day. I, I am more relaxed and relieved today than I ever have been since, since I've been nine years old. I started getting abused at 10 and I haven't been this relieved since I was nine. And so even it, though it, it's tough to talk about this, this coming out about this and letting the world know and then seeing the ripple effect of other states attorneys general stepping up, how does that make you feel as well? It's incredible. And, and it's not the relieving part, I think, really isn't about letting the world know. It's the relieving part is, is that the world is now finally receiving it in our favor. Years ago, people always protected the abuser, always, you know, looked poorly upon the victim and said they were lying or covered or they can't be true. The relieving part is we are not only that we're speaking out, but we're, we're being believed. We're being believed. And what, what, what I'd like people to know is, you know, the abuse is still occurring. This legislative battle that we're living, going into, it feels like as if we are being drowned, like we are in a lake and our heads are being forcibly held under the water by bishops and cardinals who are set out to drown us. And we are fighting for our lives. And, and if somebody comes by on the shore to view what's going on in the lake, it's like they have a lookout on the shore. And yeah. give a signal, and then the bishops raise your head above the water and act as if they're baptizing you. And then when the person walks away, they shove your head back under the water. These are moral, faith-based leaders that are supposed to be protecting your children. And the Pope has spoken out. What do you think about what the Church is doing? He's the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Why can't he just? Come to Pennsylvania, stand in front of a microphone and speak from his heart and tell us what we're going to do to move forward. Why can't he come to the steps of the Capitol like we do and say, I'm for the recommendations of the grand jury. Let's fix this. I'm the Pope. I'm here in Pennsylvania to fix this. This is my church. It's our fault. These are crimes. We're responsible. And we're going to do everything that we can to fix it. Well, Sean Doherty, I just have to say I commend you uh, for your courage. 
Uh, I'm sure your story is a beacon of light to so many others. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is the proudest thing I've ever done in my life. As for what people can do, clear your schedules for Monday, September 24th. It will be a day of activities in the Capitol when the legislators come back. We will have a march uh, from City Island to the steps of the Capitol. There will be uh, vigils. There will be press events. This is a national news event, a large turnout. Uh, We really want the legislation to to know that we want these recommendations passed. Uh, I'm asking everybody to look for me on Facebook. You can reach out to me at Twitter. I'm at underscore Sean Doherty. S-H-A-U-N-D-O-U-T-H-E-R-T-Y. All right, Sean. And we will leave a link on our website about this event. And I'll make sure I email you uh, to make sure we get that information. So thank you so much, Sean Doherty, our survivor of, of, of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. Thank you for speaking out. And, um, and, you know, we will share the information about this upcoming legislation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Next up, their mantra is be a great you. Once you learn, now you have the ability to do. A Philadelphia woman's effort to transform you through exposure. I'll explain how she does it coming up. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bonds. Hey, Brianna. Hey, hey. All right, it's time to take it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. During last week's debate, we talked about individuals who commit a crime working with victims of crime to heal the trauma to the community post-violence. If you missed it, catch it on kywnewsradio.radio.com and all podcast platforms. So we polled you all on Twitter. Are individuals who have committed a crime needed in the healing of community trauma caused by violence? The options were absolutely needed, no, they are the cause, depends on the crime, and I'm not sure. The results are in with the least percentage of votes, 10% said, I'm not sure. Tied for second and third, both with 20% were, no, they are the cause, and it depends on the crime. And that means the top answer with 50% of the vote was absolutely needed. Cherry, what do you think? I think that's the right answer. I mean, we need to do whatever needs to be done to heal the trauma in the community. We had a great discussion on this last week. And so I'm, I'm glad that everybody talked about this. Yeah, I mean, at first it was looking like people were going to say, no, they're the cause. For a little while, that was the top answer. And there were barely any votes for the number one answer, which ended up being absolutely needed. So it did turn around and people agree that both are needed. The people who have committed crimes and people who are victims of crimes to heal the community. Yeah, and I we got one tweet comment, and I think it was also on Facebook talking uh, from Tanika L. Smith, who I've known for a long time, and she she agreed. She said, yes, you know, everybody needs to work together. Yes, she said it was very important, vital. She said the exchanges, if done correctly. Yes, it's a very sensitive topic, and it can't be. As Kempis songster Shantae Love, Kempis committed a crime when he was 15 years old, did a lot of time for that. Shantae lost someone because of a crime. Her brother was brutally murdered. And so you think about the two of them sitting side by side working together to do healing. It's it's wild. Amazing. So that's all for Flashpoint on the tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Thank you so much, guys.
This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. We often tell children to be the best that they can be. Well, the nonprofit Be a Great You is helping young people in Philly's urban communities put that mantra into practice. The name is a call to action for black and brown youth to explore their inner greatness in order to achieve outer success. With us in studio to tell us more about their ongoing effort is founder and executive director Malika Rahman. Malika, welcome to the KYW studio. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Now, I have seen you out in the community. You are one busy lady. You work in law enforcement. I do. That's your day job. Yes. But... When you're not at work, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff. Tell Absolutely. everybody Absolutely. what your organization is about. All right. So Be A Great You, uh, we focus on education, empowerment, and overall life, life enhancement of young black and brown youth in the city of Philadelphia. We specifically want to focus on their social development, mm. professional development, and their intellectual development. Because oftentimes we see uh, young people and we say, well, they don't know how to act, right? Or they don't have any wherewithal to know what to do in these types of situations. Well, if nobody's teaching them what to do or how to act, then how can we fault them for not knowing what they don't know? Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we love to say, well, ignorance is bliss and people just love to be in their own ignorance. Well, some people just don't know. And if my culture is this, then you can't get mad at me if you're not willing to teach me. So that's what we do. We take on the effort to say, We understand that you may not be privy to this or you may not have been exposed to this. But with exposure comes the ability to learn. Once you learn, now you have the ability to do. Yeah. And so give me an example. Say, so, you know, you come in here. I remember going to the She Is Me luncheon. Yes. yes. Teaching young women, empowering young women. Yes. And also for young men as well. Yes, we do. So explain this cultural thing. All right. So She Is Me, um, and you've actually been to both of our our targeted events, which is awesome. So She Is Me is a very reflective piece for young women. You get to experience women who really don't mind sharing their story with you because society will show you that women have achieved, but they won't show you the backstory. And the backstory is important because our kids right now are in their backstory. So if we don't teach them that the backstory is relevant... They feel like their life has no meaning at this stage. So even now, get dressed up, put on your your dress, come on in here. We're going to have lunch. We're going to do our thing. But you're also going to get some substance while you're here. Yeah. So we do the same thing with our young men, brothers in bow ties. Brothers in bow ties. Brothers in bow ties. Some would say that's my favorite. Seeing young men and adult men embrace one another because masculinity is everywhere, right? You're not man enough. If you cry, you're not man enough. If you do this, you're not man enough. Everybody's proven how much of a man they are. But in reality, let's teach them what manhood means, right? How do they attack adversity when it comes? Why is brotherhood important? And then after that, how can I confirm who I am without conforming to what society says I should be? Yeah, And feelings, because I remember at the Brothers in Bowties, they were talking about real, like, feeling something. How do you handle when you feel vulnerable? Absolutely. And it's a tough moment. Yes, and and if you you need a hug. And I just want to back up a little bit because... You you come from this place as a place of love because you were some of these kids. Absolutely. Tell a little tell Absolutely. the folks a little bit about your story and why you are so, you know, just passionate and motivated to help these young people. So I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. I moved to Philly when I was fourteen years old, and I have been on my own since I was sixteen. So um, I've navigated life pretty much as a young person, figuring it out. And I did not have the answers and did not always have the resources to get the answers. But I understand what it's like to have that feeling of not knowing, Mm -hmm. um, the feeling of 
you know, they you're too young for this, but you're really mature enough for that. And people don't know your story. So they put you in this box of you're just a kid. Well, ma'am, I've probably been through more things than you have. And trauma affects how our kids act. Right. So people don't want to talk about the trauma. So for me, it's a real life situation because I remember being in that place of trying to figure out my life on my own and making decisions that I didn't necessarily need to make. But I made them because I felt that's what I had to do at the time. So now my thing is, if I can help you to make one less bad decision in your life, I've done my job. Your success depends on your ability to not give up. Yeah. That's it. That's all you have to do. You wake up every day. Just get up. That's half the battle. Yeah. So what are you cooking up now? <laughs> so uh, we have a couple things in the mix. We're going to be working with Abby Anderson School again, mm-hmm. um, doing some projects with them. And we are planning for our 2019 scholarship gala. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be honoring some of Philadelphia's best. But we're doing, you know, a couple things we have in progress for the kids. Want to do some events to encourage them and kind of expose them to what black success looks like at their porch, right? We want you to come. I know it's not in your front door, but maybe it's at your porch. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's at the bottom of your steps. You know, it's not as far away as we would like to believe. We're going to take them up to Harrisburg to do a couple visits, visit with some judges, some elected officials up there so they can get some of that exposure and know what happens on the other side. So, yeah, you know, crime is here and the judicial system is doing this. But how about you sit in and see how the laws are made that impact your life Mm -hmm. and see what really happens? Tell everybody where they can follow along and sign up. If you would like to reach out to Be A Great You, our website is www.beagreatyou.org. That is B-E-A-G-R-E-A-T-Y-O-U dot O-R-G. Our Instagram is Be A Great You. We are on Twitter. Be a great you also. And I just have to say congratulations to you, Malika. It's so genuine. Uh, the work that you do, amazing. So I just want to say this has been Malika Rahman. She's the executive director of Be A Great You Incorporated. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the podcast by using the radio.com app, Apple podcast app, or whatever platform you use to get your pods. You can also visit us at kywnewsradio.com and click on Flashpoint under On Demand. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Mark Twain once said, it is easier to fool the people than to convince the people they have been fooled. Sit on that for a second. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.